0: Hello, listeners. As we began researching and putting together this episode, we realized how much there was to say about Elijah P. Lovejoy. When we came to this town, Lovejoy was a household name. There was a restaurant named after him, a school,
1: and a big monument that you can see from the bridge. Stephanie's right. We honestly didn't know Jack Squat about this guy until we started asking around and Googling him. It doesn't take too long until you come across how much of an influence his life and death played in the anti-slavery movement and freedom of the press. What I found surprising and honestly a little frustrating
0: is that I was a journalism major just 10 miles up the river and knew nothing about him.
1: And I was a sociology major and had no idea that this area had such a strong history of social change. What you're about to hear is an example of how an individual used his privilege and means to bring to light the atrocities that were going on within our nation. This is Shannon. And I'm Stephanie. Welcome to All-Town USA.
0: Let's start with Corey Davenport, who is a writer for Riverbender.com. We asked Corey about what it means to be a journalist in Alton.
2: Um, I mean, this town has a history of good journalism, and I used to work at The Telegraph. And during my time there, Lovejoy's press, just seeing that press every morning walking into work, it inspired me. I was like, man, I got work to do. I got work to do. Because if I am, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, I look down and I'm just like, I have to continue this legacy. As a reporter in Alton, it is your responsibility to carry on the legacy of journalism in Alton, which was Lovejoy.
1: Elijah Lovejoy was born on November 9th, 1802 in Albion, Maine. After graduating college in the Northeast, he, like many other young graduates, traveled west for new opportunities. Lovejoy moved to St. Louis, met his wife, became involved in several newspapers, and discovered religion. He then attended Princeton Theological Seminary, returned to the area, established a Presbyterian church, and continued his role as editor of the St. Louis Observer.
0: We asked Eric Robinson, an assistant history professor at the St. Louis College of Pharmacy and tour guide for the Underground Railroad in Alton and Godfrey, about Lovejoy's stance on slavery and where it came from.
2: Lovejoy, uh, I think it's important to remember, was very much a product of uh, American mainstream Protestantism that existed in the 1830s. Some of his views we would consider abhorrent today. For example... He like a lot of American Protestants in the 1830s. He was extremely anti-Catholic, almost in a racist sense, uh, looking at uh, the Irish immigrant as being subhuman. There's that argument. Uh, Lovejoy had views of race that honestly was heavily tinged with noblesse oblige, which, to be frank about it, that's more condescending than what most Americans living today would be used to. It was a very popular opinion about people of color to look at them as these poor, these poor Negroes. I need to help them, or I just like these poor Irish. I need to help them, um, rather than letting them help themselves. And Lovejoy seemed to have had those opinions too, but Lovejoy, it's quite true, uh, was very prescient in describing slavery as a great, as a great conflagration, through which this country would have to pass.
1: By the summer of 1835, tensions increased among the different perspectives regarding the emancipation of slaves. Lovejoy was advised by the owners of the St. Louis Observer to stop printing pieces written about slavery. However, Lovejoy refused. And he was
0: determined to stay in St. Louis until April of 1836, when Francis McIntosh, a mulatto steamboat porter and cook, was brutally murdered. McIntosh was dragged out of jail by an angry mob after he had killed one police officer and wounded another. He
1: was chained to a tree and set on fire. The presiding judge decided not to convict anyone of the heinous crime. Any attention was then turned to individuals such as Lovejoy. They were blamed for inciting McIntosh to attack the two policemen. Not long after, Lovejoy moved the observer to Alton, Illinois, a free state, thinking it would be a more tolerant location for his views on slavery.
2: He was forced out of St. Louis and he came to Alton at a time when in the 1830s Alton was very well known in Boston and in New York City in Manhattan and Philadelphia and Charleston as the new city of the west. Well, Uh, Lovejoy, like a lot of people out east, was still extremely ignorant about how pervasive slavery was Even though by 1836, 1837, he had been in St. Louis for 15 years He was completely ignorant uh, that this was the type of place that, like any other place, hates to give up its money It also had difficulty breaking itself with the money of slavery
0: Now you're going to hear from Jim Schrader, who is the publisher of the Alton Telegraph. I had the honor of interviewing Jim in front of what remains of Lovejoy's final press, a cast-iron yoke, located in the former offices of the Telegraph.
3: Elijah thought he would be safe in this free state of Illinois. And Illinois was a free state. However, the problem was that the labor pool, the slave labor for these boats coming up the Mississippi River from New Orleans and and parts south, coming down the Missouri River from parts west, were landing here in Alton, and the slaves were the labor pool loading and unloading those packet boats. So Elijah Lovejoy's views pretty quickly got him into trouble.
1: Lovejoy's press was destroyed by mobs on both sides of the river two times before individuals from Alton helped to raise the money for a third press. Lovejoy is quoted as saying, But gentlemen, as long as I am an American citizen, and as long as American blood runs in these veins, I shall hold myself at liberty to speak, to write, and to publish whatever I please on any subject, being amenable to the laws of my country for the same. When
0: the third press arrived in September of 1836, the Alton Observer was established. It ran uninterrupted until August 1837, when a mob once again attacked it. These mobs were made up of civilians and civic officials who demanded that Lovejoy stop printing his anti-slavery content, even though the law stated that Illinois was a free state, meaning slavery was illegal, and his right to freedom of the press was upheld by the U.S. Constitution.
1: So what exactly did Lovejoy publish in the Alton Observer? Here's a clip from an article in 1837. Husbands and wives and parents and children have been torn asunder with an utter recklessness of feeling that equals, to say the least, anything of cruelty that the annals of savagedom can furnish, and all to make these victims toil and sweat unthanked and unrewarded in order to enrich their plunderers.
2: And what Lovejoy does in the last months of his life, he uses this pejorative as a, a, a red shirt. He's, he embraces it. And and it, it, it seems to have been something, uh, a rhetorical device, a device that largely was designed to disarm his opponents. Well, it inflamed them. In
1: 1837, a month before the fatal attack that would end his life, Lovejoy, alongside others, called for the formation of an Illinois anti-slavery society. The convention was open to opposing views in hopes that constructive dialogue would occur. However, hundreds of pro-slavery advocates gathered and tensions between the two sides heightened. The anti-slavery society moved to a more private location, the Old Rock House on College Avenue in Upper Alton, which was owned by Rev. T.B. Hurlbut, pastor of the Upper Alton Presbyterian Church. The Stone House was built in 1835, and still exists today. We found minutes
0: from one of the first meetings of the Illinois Anti-Slavery Convention, which included the Constitution. The first article stated that the group was to be called the Madison County Anti-Slavery Society.
1: We wanted to share with you a portion of the second article of their Constitution, which states, The object of this society shall be the extinction of slavery in our land and nation, by exhibiting clearly, boldly, and faithfully, but with kindness and love, its inherent guilt and opposition to God's word, and by employing against it all those means and efforts, and all that influence, which as lovers of our fellow men, as freemen and as Christians, we are enabled to employ and are bound in duty to use. In his final
0: public speech, Lovejoy addressed the anti-slavery meeting and declared, If the civil authorities refuse to protect me, I must look to God. And if I die, I have determined to make my grave in Alton.
3: He took delivery of this fourth press, I believe, either the afternoon of the 6th of November, or the morning of November the 7th, Uh, He heard that vigilantes were going to come down and destroy his fourth press. He and a friend decided to kind of set up shop in the Godfrey and Gilman warehouse. Benjamin Godfrey was the owner of the warehouse, primary owner. Godfrey and Gilman warehouse, which sat at 2nd, which is now Broadway, and State Street. Um, Elijah Lovejoy was going to protect his press with a few other friends. Uh, There's argument as to who shot first, the first gunfire that rang out, but gunfire did ring out, and they shot Elijah P. Lovejoy. Even though he was mortally wounded, uh, they then threw his fourth press in the river.
1: Lovejoy was killed on November 7, 1837, two days before his 35th birthday. Four men admitted to shooting Lovejoy. All were acquitted, and some sources say that one of them became the mayor of Alton. Here is John Langley, a guide at the Alton Museum of History and Art.
4: You know, the news spread eventually nationwide, of course, so we didn't have the fast news reporting that we have today, but within a few weeks, everybody knew about it. And it was something that was to lead to a major change in, in America. So Elijah Lovejoy became become very famous.
0: The New York American newspaper wrote, American blood has been shed, at last, by American hands, employed to maintain slavery and crush free discussion.
3: Elijah Parrish Lovejoy was the first well-known martyr to freedom of the press. Now, had there been others that were probably injured along the way, yes, but he was the one that was probably most well-known because Civil War historians will tell you the first shot of what led to the Civil War conflict was the murder of Elijah Lovejoy November the 7th of 1837. Uh, so he's got, a, a, we've got dual history here. You've got a martyr to freedom of the press, which the Constitution guarantees everybody and he should have had the rights to publish what he, his opinions. Uh, but also he's, you know, the hostilities led to the Civil War. So not only is he a martyr to press freedom, but he is also a martyr to what ultimately caused the country to divide. Yeah.
2: After Lovejoy's death, his brother, Owen, proclaims himself as an abolitionist. And we can say definitely, Owen was the leader of the abolitionists in Illinois, uh, an abolitionist nationally. Uh, Elisha Lovejoy, would probably be a little bit more comfortable calling him a martyr, a person who willingly embraced a cause, was willing to give his life for the cause, uh, possibly because of some messianic position that he had.
1: The Illinois Anti-Slavery Society joined the Liberty Party in the 1840s and eventually inspired more candidates to run for office, one of them being Owen Lovejoy, the brother of Elijah Lovejoy, who eventually made it to the U.S. House of Representatives, and worked closely with Abraham Lincoln. When the Fugitive Slave Law of
0: 1850 was enacted, the National Anti-Slavery Movement responded in a number of ways, one of which being the publication of the book Uncle Tom's Cabin in
1: 1852 by Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's reported that when Abraham Lincoln met her, he said, So you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. And how, you might ask, is this all connected to Alton? Well, Harriet was the sister of Edward Beecher, the first president of Illinois College, and one of the founding members of the Madison County Anti-Slavery Society, alongside Lovejoy and Hurlbut. Now, let's fast forward to the last Lincoln-Douglas debate held in 1858
0: in downtown Alton, where anti-slavery was the main issue. Stephen Douglas
1: believed in popular sovereignty which gave settlers the ability to decide the fate of slavery in their new territory, not Congress. Lincoln believed that slavery was immoral and attacked popular sovereignty, which was a direct result of what was happening in Kansas during this time. Pro-slavery and anti-slavery settlers were literally killing each other over whether the state was to allow slavery. This is known as Bloody Kansas.
0: Lincoln lost the series
1: of debates, and Douglas became the
0: Democratic candidate for the Illinois Senate seat. However, this actually ended up working out well for Lincoln, because he became the first Republican presidential nominee, and as we know,
1: he won the 1860 presidential election. Five years prior, Lincoln lost another election, this time to Lyman Trumbull, who lived in Alton between 1849 and 1855. We hear they had a competitive relationship.
4: Okay, Lyman Trumbull was a senator from Alton. He was involved in many things that touched history in a great number of ways. One of them, he started a young man in his political career here in Alton who was to become famous in his later years. His name was Abraham Lincoln. He he fought a famous legal battle in this room right up here. He also uh, became president of the United States. Lyman Trumbull worked with Lincoln on many projects. Lyman uh, Trumbull's life Uh, was kind of convoluted in some respects. Mary Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's wife, hated Lyman Trumbull till the day she died. And the main reason for that was was when Lincoln decided to become a politician taking Lyman Trumbull's advice, he ran against Lyman Trumbull for his seating in the Senate and, of course, was defeated. And uh, Mary Todd Lincoln held that against Lyman Trumbull for the rest of her life. Lincoln, although he worked with Lyman Trumbull on many projects, did not really get along well with uh, Lyman Trumbull either. And it was kind of an unusual situation since they were both working for the same goals. Uh, there was some friction there, as we see in our Congress today, for that matter.
1: So what's the most important thing Lyman Trumbull did during his two decades in Senate? Trumbull co-authored and put forth the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. Fun fact— Illinois became the first state to accept the 13th Amendment.
0: Remember in episode one when we talked about how, after Illinois was designated a free state, black codes were implemented to deny basic human rights to African Americans? Lyman Trumbull recognized the need to protect freed African Americans from new black codes that might be established after the abolishment of slavery. So he constructed the Civil Rights Bill of 1866, which granted individuals with the full benefits of white citizens, with the exception of American Indians. This bill was the foundation for the 14th Amendment, which in 1868 granted
1: citizenship to all citizens who are born or naturalized in the United States. However, many states defined the rights of citizenship differently, interpreting or even ignoring the 14th Amendment. A new era of black codes began. Jim Crow laws were positioned as separate but equal and existed from the 1880s until the Civil Rights Act of 1964.
5: Look, after the Civil War, abolitionists were among the most despised people in America. Uh, they were looked upon as those who had brought on this dreadful conflict by their uncompromising opposition to slavery, and the Civil War was a dreadful conflict. of the population killed, that was a a tremendous sum for those days. So virtually every family in the United States was affected by the war. It lost someone or had someone seriously wounded. It was a, a tragedy with many facets.
1: That was John Dunphy, owner of the Second Reading Bookshop in downtown Alton. So this term
0: abolitionist keeps coming up. It came up in our research, and it's a term used by many to describe lovejoy. But as John just mentioned, for years before and after the Civil War, people were hesitant to use the word abolitionist when describing lovejoy. As it turns out, there were actually some negative connotations to that word in the mid to late 1800s.
2: Abolitionists argued, generally speaking, was slavery as an institution had to be addressed aggressively, including, if necessary, battle.
3: The label of abolitionist was not necessarily something that you wore proudly, because it could get you in a lot of trouble, Mm -hmm. and did, he's probably the most renowned, but there were abolitionist publishers all over the United States at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's the most celebrated because he was murdered, but if you read history, even as late as 1860 when the Civil War started, there were newspaper offices that were trashed and burned and presses destroyed because of what they wrote about slavery and the Civil War. It was just, this was the first one.
5: When Lovejoy's mind was dedicated 1897, it was a very racist nation. And one did not uh, eulogize someone wanted to be recognized as a hero as an abolitionist because abolitionists were so hated.
1: When Elijah Lovejoy was killed in 1837, his grave needed to be protected. William Scotts, or Scotch Johnston, was a free black stonecutter who worked on the St. Louis Old Cathedral. He was the only one who knew where Lovejoy was buried, and assisted in Lovejoy's formal burial in 1864. Thomas Dimmick read Lovejoy's eulogy. He was a well-known abolitionist and conductor on the Underground Railroad.
0: Dimmick donated the plot for Lovejoy's burial and designated Isaac Kelly trustee of the Lovejoy gravesite. Kelly also protected and directed escaping slaves from the Union Baptist Church in the center of town. Since 1864, a memorial service has been held on November 9th at noon in Lovejoy's honor, and a scholarship program has continued to this day.
5: It wasn't until really... Uh, the beginning of the modern civil rights movement, the 1950s, 1960s, that Lovejoy was recognized as an abolitionist. So he wasn't a saint. He, he was a flawed man. But his greatness lied in abolitionism. He was opposed to slavery. He recognized it as a great evil when too many Americans were willing to tolerate it.
0: Even within large movements, it's important to remember that not everyone viewed a common goal in the same way.
2: Abolitionists and anti-slavery are not one and the same. Uh, a lot of people were anti-slavery, as I indicated, but a lot of people were of the opinion that it's a white-only country. And, and they are also of the opinion, generally speaking, that the death of slavery should be uh, should have been addressed through natural economic deterioration, uh, natural economic forces, and then it will be politically unnecessary. It's that, that was the position that many of those so-called founding fathers had. Thomas Jefferson had that opinion. They were not necessarily of the opinion that the Negro is unequal to the white. They, they didn't have that. That was too forward for them, even for the abolitionists. The, the, the anti-slavery people, generally speaking, felt slavery should not be extended beyond where it was currently located, uh, south of the Missouri, at Mason-Dixon line and south of Missouri. Arkansas state lines, with the exception of Missouri. Abolitionists took a different view. Abolitionists, generally speaking, took the opinion, first of all, that economic uh, deterioration leading to slavery's end won't happen. It wouldn't happen because of the cotton gin. The cotton gin made slavery profitable impossible. the ability to hold two distinctly different ideas in your mind, that happens to be a human trait. And so when you talk about Alton history, like history in any place, at any time, you must have the multiple views before you have the total view.
1: Do you think history is being taught in that way? <sighs>
2: History has never been taught in the idea of multiplicity. History has always been taught in a simplistic manner. We do a poor job teaching history in this country. And it's been a poor job teaching history since the 1890s. It's important to understand history as multiplicity. Not as though it appears in a comic book. And, uh, Unfortunately, the way the human mind is, is, has been trained in America, we do view it as part of a comic book.
5: Yeah. So I did, we need a better job in that. We just have to see past our differences and recognize that we we do have a common goal. We want to live in a country that's humane, compassionate, that recognizes, endorses, celebrates equality, celebrates justice. We can do it. We need the spirit and courage of the abolitionists, both black and white. We think of how Lovejoy's death inspired so many the abolitionist movement. He was a martyr to freedom of the press, but also a martyr to abolitionism. John Brown, when he learned of Lovejoy's death, dedicated his life to the abolition of slavery. Ralph Waldo Emerson was tremendously moved by Lovejoy's story. He refers to uh, Lovejoy in his essay, Heroism. Times of heroism are generally times of terror. The circumstances of man, we say, are historically somewhat better in this country and at this hour than perhaps ever before. More freedom exists for culture. It will not now run against an axe at the first step out of the beaten track of opinion. But whoso is heroic will always find crisis to try his edge. Human virtue demands her champions and martyrs, and the trial of persecution always proceeds. It is but the other day that the brave Lovejoy gave his breast to the bullets of a mob for the rights of free speech and opinion, and died when it was better not to live. Ralph Waldo Emerson
0: In next week's episode, we explore one of the earliest free African American settlements in the region, Rocky Fork. We will take a look at how the community got started and speak with some of the individuals who keep its history alive.
5: We moved out here. Dad had six kids six boys and one girl. And that was the only way that black folks could live, you know. This place out here, my mom, my grandfather used to live out here. It was paid for, the only thing he had to do was pay for electricity. That was it. But I can remember way back when in the 50s, we couldn't live anywhere. For coloreds, that's what it was. And white folks, you know, that's the way it was. But it's not that way anymore. That's one good thing about it. If you got the money, you can buy anything.
1: All Town USA is written, produced, and edited by Shannon Briggs and Stephanie Young. Theme music by Will and Janet Buchanan with additional recording mixing by Darren Pierce. Special thanks to Corey Davenport, John Dunphy, John Langley, Eric Robinson, Jim Schrader, and John O'Hagan.